Slice. You are listening to Marvel's pull list for brand new Marvel comics on sale August 11th, 2021. It is week two of What If Month, and I'm Ryan Panagos, aka Agent M. And what if my name was Tucker Marcus? No, what if it wasn't? What if your name was <laughs> yeah, more question. white? How would it get like what what could be more white than Tucker Chet Marcus? I don't know. I know. Absolutely nothing. I digress. We are here to tell you all about the Marvel comics that are happening right now. We've got picks for this week, some books that we really love, uh, and then we're going to give out awards for books we also really dug and want you to check out. Uh, we're going to talk about the collections on sale this week, stuff that's hitting Marvel Unlimited, and Tucker, we have a reading club. Who's our guest this week? This week, we're talking to Peter B. Gillis, uh, Marvel mainstay for many years, and we're diving, of course, into a load of excellent what-if issues, including what-if 18, 23, 30, 40, and 46, as well as just a bunch more stuff. Those are from the original what-if series. It's so much fun, and it's been so much fun, and I'm so excited to keep diving into the stories of what if, not just the issues themselves, but the stories around the stories, the people who brought them to life. It's all so, so cool. Before we dive into books, how you doing, Tucker? Oh, I'm doing all right. I'm doing just fine. How you doing? I'm doing great. This is recording three of three for the day. Yeah, it's been a big one. It's been good. We've been having a lot of fun and we're going to keep that going as we get into our new books this week. The first of our three picks is another Ryan Panagos special, a book specifically built and engineered, it seems, for me. It is Defenders Number 1. The story is by Al Ewing and Javier Rodriguez, with inks by Alvaro Lopez, letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. So Javier, among my favorite artists, is doing the pencils, doing the colors, working on some of the inks. Alvaro, frequent collaborator of Javier's, does great work on the inks as well. And Al Ewing, I just love... Al, big swing Ewing, just does not steer away from getting weird, bringing in wild concepts. And this one is extra cool because it ties into Marvel Comics 1000 and some of the things that were set up, God, what was that, two years ago? I don't remember time anymore, but that set up some stuff here in Defenders. It set up stuff in Iron Man. There's connections to the current Iron Man book, but there's this big overarching story of the Masked Raider and this Eternity Mask and tying that into big things that have to be dealt with. And it goes to Doctor Strange, who has been probably the most constant aspect of various iterations of Defenders. And within that, you just get a lot of wild stuff. There's, um, I don't know anything about tarot cards, but there's this aspect of this story where Doctor Strange is pulling out tarot cards to figure out the team he needs for this specific quote unquote mission. So the cast of this book is wild. You've got Doctor Strange. You've got the Masked Raider. Uh, we bring in Silver Surfer, another frequent defender. We bring in the Harpy, aka Betty Banner, who was most recently in the Immortal Hulk. And we're bringing Cloud. And if you don't know Cloud because you haven't read J.M. Demetrius's run on Defenders or the, the frequent uh, appearances there, I will give the uh, description of Cloud in the cast page of this issue. Cloud is a nebula that gained human form via the influence of a cosmic cube and a chance encounter with teenagers Carol Faber and Danny Milligan, whose bodies and senses Cloud combined and co-opted for their own. Cloud is almost a kind of progressive character for the age that they were created in. But the story here is big, 
cosmic, mystic, strange, and beautiful. Javier Rodriguez, the artist on some of my favorite books, Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer Supreme, or History of the Marvel Universe, Spider-Woman, so much. There's a lot of Kirby in here. There's a lot of Ditko in here, but all through the lens of, of Javier's like modern color palette and vibrancy and storytelling. His panel layouts are... They're just unstoppable. Every page feels like something different. The spreads, your eye flows around. It is, you know, storytelling and the art of directing a reader's eye is a very important thing. Al and Javi, I think, are putting on a wonderful piece of comic book storytelling in here. I don't want to, like, reveal the ending because the ending was, like, something we've never really dealt with in Marvel Comics. We've seen little bits and pieces but now they're going full on into it, and I'm so excited. It's transcendent artwork. And hey, that book has something in common with a book that I'm picking this week, which is a beautiful Peach Momoko variant cover. On that one, it's Avengers Tech On number one. One, I think just visually, it's a really striking book. And two, it's written by, I think, an underrated and crucial creator in the stable of House of Ideas creators that we have, you know, nowadays that we get to enjoy week in and week out. The art is by Jeffrey Chamba Cruz. And it's written by the person that I was just talking about, Jim's Up, uh, with letters throughout by VCs Travis Lanham. This is one of those where pencils, inks, colors, all of it is brought to you by Chamba here. And it's a really striking book. And it's one of those that looks unlike anything else. It does bring to mind, though, some of the work that Jim Zub has written in the past. I think he very clearly has a love for this type of storytelling and this type of visual. And he does it really wonderfully. It's really, really great. And it's a, it's a pleasure to read his work. And like I said, this one, pick it up at your LCS, flip through it, and you'll be struck, I think, the same way. It's a really unique-looking tale. It sort of has its own impetus behind it with uh, being a sort of co-production tie-in with Bandai, which is just really cool. And look, the overall thing here is that we have the Avengers, and they each have their own sort of Iron Man suits by the end of this issue. That's what's advertised on these beautiful covers, and that's what you're going to get, the Iron Avengers to see what they're up against to see what goes down is equally as you can imagine part of the fun um, but I also want to shout out the cover artists who bring you um, the beautiful main cover here and we've also seen if you've peeked online uh, I think the the next couple as well they're just really cool super detailed and the cover artists are Aichi Shimizu and Tomohiro Shimaguchi, uh, I think they combine beautifully to put together, I think just, uh, again, it's one of those things. This book stands out. It's a really striking series, um, and I'm looking forward to, to more of it. As we get to know these characters, this iteration of these characters, this iteration of a story that certain elements you may be familiar with, but then by the end of it, it totally swings off into left field. So I'm excited for more of it. It's one of those ones that are sort of quietly ghosts in and, and gives me a lot of pleasure. It's really cool. It's sort of... What if the Avengers were a Super Sentai Tokusatsu series, 
of basically superhero characters with like special suits and they get these special pieces of armor and they fight, you know, monsters and, and, and villains and stuff like that. So if you are a fan of Japanese Spider-Man, if you're a fan of, you know, your Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, that's the vibe that this is sort of leaning into in all the best ways. And then on top of that, there's a whole line of toys for Avengers Tech On. There's a really beautiful Iron Man action figure from uh, it's Bendai Spirits, the SH figure arts line with these Avengers Tech On. It's pretty cool. Definitely check them out. All right. Our third pick of the week is Runaways number 38. This is the final issue of this volume. It is also the 100th issue of Runaways comics we've gotten. It's like this roller coaster ride of highs and lows and smooching and fighting and hugging and crying and revelations and secrets and future glimpses and characters trying to protect people. And man, I just I love this book so friggin' much. It is written by Rainbow Rowell with art in here by Andres Genolet with colors by D. Cuniff and letters by VCs Caramagna. There are a couple of pages at the end with different artists who draw them, but those are surprises-ish. I guess it's not so much of a surprise if I say it, but those are in there. Man, we've talked about Runaways so much. I think Rainbow and Chris Anka and, and then Andre... They've done such an amazing job of giving that perfect mix of Marvel superhero action and teen young adult drama and like leaning even more into the young adult drama than the superhero stuff to the best possible effect. This has been one of my favorite books over these last three years. I am absolutely gutted that it's the last issue reading it. My heart dropped when I got to the last couple of pages, which are a note from Nick Lowe, the editor, and the creative team here just describing, you know, this is the end. Thank you to everyone. Um, I think it's meant a lot to a lot of readers. And as Nick says at the end, these characters aren't gone forever. Someone else will pick them up. There will be a new story with them. You know, we'll find these characters over time, especially the way that Rainbow and the team leave them. I'm just like, how dare you? end this book this way with all these big cliffhangers and wonderful moments. It is a beautiful, beautiful send-off to this series and makes me want so much more immediately. And hopefully we won't have to wait too long for more Runaways. There's a lot that happens in this issue. It's a big sea change for the Runaways characters. And do not get spoiled. Read this and then weep for Runaways is now gone, but be joyous that we got 38 issues of this incredible series. What a beautiful run it has been. I'm of a mind to name this week's Holist Award after the creative team of that series. Maybe let's call it like this week's Rainbow Christ Andre Award because those are some of the best folks around with super, super, super talent. All right, let's dive into it. All the new comics heading your way this week. And the first one up that we're covering next is America Chavez, made in the USA, number five. And I'm giving my Rainbow Chris Andre Award to the emotional work that's been done over the course of this limited series. I am so impressed. Kalinda Vasquez, I think, has just done an amazing job writing this series. And look, this is one that definitely had a lot of writing challenges to it. You know, there's a whole thing to do with America's backstory, America's position in the Marvel Universe. 
And that's not to mention just the character work that goes in here about uh, America's relationships, America's friends, America's family, America's romantic life. There's so much ground to cover and so much has been done in these five issues alone. I really love the emotional arc that we're taking on over the course of these five issues and in particular this one as well. And on top of that, we get uh, a little glimpse at some uh, giant rabid fighting rats in here, which absolutely rules. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, you got that, you got the heart, you got the emotion, you got a little bit of everything here as this limited series concludes. Yeah. All right, we've got Captain Marvel number 31 out this week. This is one of my favorite types of issues that like almost like a cooldown between big arcs. This one is about Carol and Rhodey, who are lovers. They just want to go on vacation. They want to have a little break uh, and they want to sort of like do it as normies. I think my rainbow Chris Andre award goes to the scene that Kelly Thompson writes of them in an airplane it's just hilarious and wonderful. Just you're like, ding-dongs, you can fly. Why are you getting in an airplane? It's really funny, but it's it's a tremendous issue. The next one that I have on my list is Children of the Atom number six. Huge shout out to writer Vita Ayala, who gets my Rainbow Chris Andre Award because of the clear emotional investment in these characters, a lot of whom we're still getting to know for the very first time. But it's a really cool, I think, slightly meta in all the best ways, look at the X-Men, about the mantles that these X-Men hold, about the characters in this series who look towards the X-Men. This issue sort of stands on either side of the line of the Hellfire Gala, where we get some scenes where we're inside the Gala itself, and then we get some that are outside that deal with some other things simultaneously. So there's a lot going on here. And like I said, huge kudos to Vita and company for just making me really care about these characters just six issues in. There's so much work that needs to be done to make that happen, but I think they've done it beautifully. This is some really, really wonderful work that's being done on the fringes of the island, on the detailed, on the esoteric characters, on the the people who are new to this story. So there's just great stuff, and I think it speaks to the power of what's being done across mutant dumb in general. All right, we've got Daredevil number 33 out this week, and New York City has a bullseye problem in this book. It's nasty. I love the storyline. It's uh, scary and dangerous, and it puts New York City in lockdown. But my Rainbow Chris Andre Award of the Week for this book goes to the final page. It's a big splash page with Daredevil. I won't say anything more. I'm going to leave it at that. It is really cool, though. Uh, some nasty stuff is happening for both Daredevils in this arc right now. Oh, yeah. Next up, we have Fantastic Four Life Story number three. Shout out to Sean Isaacs for his work on this book because I think it's just beautiful. There's a lot of detail that needs to be captured, a lot that needs to be paid attention to when you're looking at a story that takes place sort of as these life story books have done in real time. This is uh, an issue that takes place in the 80s. And what I kind of enjoy most about it is that you see the greater and greater sort of political, geopolitical, international relations involvement that the Fantastic Four have. Obviously, we're dealing with something like the Cold War in the 1980s, but 
given the linear progression of the characters, Ritsu, Ben, Johnny, it's a different interpretation of that. And we've, I think in maybe all of these issues so far, kick things off in the White House with like some really high level meetings happening. So seeing it through that lens, I think is so, so unique. That's not something we get all the time. Certainly when it comes to these kind of things, you know, we get characters that are sort of siloed, that are dealing with their own stuff, dealing with their Marvel things. But to see these characters heavily involved with the real world in this way, it both makes perfect sense and it's really, really exciting to see. But capturing that 1980s vibe with art is Sean Isaacs, who I think gets my Rainbow Chris Andre Award because it's a huge challenge, but it just feels so right. It's really, really wonderfully done here. All right, we've got Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 29. This is sort of the the fallout of the Clone Saga storyline. It's great. And my Rainbow Chris Andre Award for this one goes to the return of a Marvel's pull list favorite character who we said when they first appeared months and months ago, we better see more of this character. And here they are. It's great. It's the return of Kenneth. Kenneth is just this wonderful character that Miles befriends early on in the in the run, and they have a great conversation. There's some just wonderful moments and beats between them, and Kenneth plays an important part in Miles' life, actually a very important part for Miles here, because this is the introduction of a brand new costume and look for Miles, one that Kenneth designs. There's also a sweet conversation with Kenneth and Miles and Kenneth's mom in here. It's a sweet issue. There, There is some like underlying menace, as of course there is around Miles and, and a Spider-Man. But this one is just, it's what you need after the harrowing tale of the Clone Saga. Oh yeah, right there with you. And hey, we're keeping things going with Spidey stuff in Spider-Man Spider's Shadow number five. This is the finale of this limited series. And what a ride it's been. You know, I think Chip Zdarsky, who's the writer of this series, is one for whom I think subversion comes naturally. And I think he's always looking to subvert a character's story, to really challenge a character, to present a new look at something familiar. That's obviously the case when it comes to this entire Spider Shadow story in general, but I think it really comes through in this issue as well, but not just in terms of the characters, but also in terms of the way the book is laid out in general, the panel structure, the use of splash pages. I don't want to spoil too much, but it's really uniquely done in here. And I think all deliberately, very carefully planned and executed by artist Pascal Ferry. And we end up in a fascinating place that I didn't see coming that I was not anticipating. It's such a great final what if moment. Like it to yeah. me, I read it and I was like, ah, that feels like the what if of my youth. That like how yeah, that yeah. ends is just. Mwah. Exactly. It's so great. And it just feels right. It's a totally unexpected turn, but it feels totally, totally right. So I'm going to say uh, rainbow Chris Andre award goes to page 18 on this uh, issue. Pick it up to see what that means. And I would highly recommend picking up the previous four issues as well, because what a ride it's been. Heck yeah. Uh, Speaking of rides, we're taking a ride to a galaxy far, far away. And even earlier in the the timeline that we know with Star Wars, The High Republic number eight. This is a big one for the series because it's sort of the the culmination of the battle that the Jedi have against the uh, Drengir how I'm pronouncing it this week. The big plant-like things, the creatures that just, they just want to eat, man. They just want to control, like, you know, 
I get it, bros. But my Rainbow Chris Andre award goes to just pulling out all the High Republic Jedi to come out and fight the fight this issue. Next up, we are headed back to the realm of the mutants with X-Force number 22. We love Ben Percy here. We're huge fans. We love Josh Kassara here. We're huge fans. Robert Gill jumps in on the art on this issue and crushes it. And uh, in addition to that, in addition to just how good this book looks, there's some really thrilling, totally classic, what has become very quickly classic over the course of 22 issues, X-Force stuff. And that comes in the form of manslaughter in this issue, which is so thrilling, so cool, so badass. And just like I said, so, so perfect. But my Rainbow Chris Andre Award goes to Guru EFX for colors because it's such a crucial part of every single comic. I think it's a crucial part of tying continuity together in terms of the art, in terms of the visuals of any story. So to have Robert Gill's excellent art and then Guru EFX jumping in with the colors over top, it just folds it in beautifully. And I think it looks excellent. And really, if I had to say which of the the, the big X-Men titles out there make most use of color, of lighting, of drama, of noir moments, of allowing a source of light to sort of inform the tone of the scene that's happening near it, uh, I would put X-Force right up there. So big kudos to Guru FX. Great stuff as usual uh, and great stuff as usual coming in X-Force. Yeah. Our final book of the week is X-Men Legends number six. This is the second of a two-part story that fits into some classic 90s Peter David uh, written X-Factor issues. Uh, This is written also by Peter David. And um, it's just a great Peter David moment in here, which gets my Rainbow Chris Andre Award of the Week. It is Quicksilver carrying Dr. Doom on his back to run through New York City to get them from one place to another as quick as possible. It is wonderfully comedic and over the top, yet feels so perfect and well executed because look, Todd Knock up in the house and we love our Todd over here. Oh yeah, that's what we have for all the new Marvel comics hitting shelves this week. So much good stuff. And there's also a bunch to enjoy in the collections The one that springs immediately to mind, however, is Iron Fist, Heart of the Dragon. That's Larry Hama, comic book legend, absolutely bringing it. No holding back. So that's going to be an excellent one to pick up in collections. So, so, so good. Yeah. Over in Marvel Unlimited, we've got a whole bunch of books that you can check out. Carnage, Black, White, and Blood, number three. Heroes Reborn, number one. Get on it, everybody. Move out the way, because Heroes Reborn is now hitting Marvel Unlimited. That's all you need to know. Get into it. But we're going to get into some stuff, too. Tucker, remind us, once again, who is our reading club with this week? This week, we're talking to Peter B. Gillis, writer of many, many things, including a bunch of excellent what-if stories. And as it's what-if month, we're diving into that legendary series, in particular, the original series. And again, if you want to tune into the comics themselves on Marvel Unlimited, that's what-if number 18, number 23, 30, 40, and 46. Go give those a peek as you're listening to our conversation with the writer of them, Peter B. Gillis.
Tucker, I am thrilled to continue our exploration of all things What If with our guest this week. It is Mr. Peter B. Gillis. Peter, thank you for being on the show with us. Nice to be here. What If is my like all-time favorite series. I still have all of my What Ifs from uh, when I was growing up. So I, I'm very excited to talk to you. Uh, you have some great What If stories. Our reading club this week, we have a, a host of your What If written books in here. But uh, I, you know, I want to get into it. How did you first get linked up with doing the What If comics for Marvel? Well, part of my uh, pre-professional life was palling around with Mark Gruenwald. And I wrote for his fanzine Omniverse, which deals with alternate realities. And we talked about it a lot. And uh, when I was working at Marvel, and What If was Roy Thomas's baby? But then when Mark became the co-editor of it, I was into his office like lightning. And uh, I said, I've got all these ideas. And um, he said, sure. And pretty much at the first time I sold him the idea of the Doctor Strange and what if Spider-Man became a movie producer instead of a crime fighter. And later on, a couple more things, the Hulk, what if the first Thor, what if that I did and so forth. I wanted to be on it from the moment Roy created the book. So I finally had an in and that was how it happened. What was it about what if in general and the spirit of what if and the enterprise that Roy was undertaking that so obviously specifically appealed to you? Well, doing a what if in which something had happened differently gives you a test of who the character is. If I can be really pretentious, Aristotle defined character as what figures in a drama would be doing if they weren't doing the story. And so this is a really, really good way to get at who the characters are and also to put them in fun situations, which is the other part of it. And the Doctor Strange story and the Spider-Man story, you know, looking back, I kind of doubled up because both Peter Parker and Stephen Strange were really not nice guys when they started. Peter Parker, not quite so much. But what was Peter Parker's first idea when he got his superpowers? I can make money from this. <laughs> and in typical Marvel Stanley fashion, they learn lessons in their origin. But what if they didn't? And so I have the shallow Peter Parker opting for riches because he has no guilt on him. And Stephen Strange becomes a black magician, both tremendously different in tone, of course. But Yeah, you dovetail wonderfully into what if number 18, that what if Dr. Strange were a disciple of Dormammu and really hitting that really simple thing that really appeals to us about what if a, a, a one tiny change and how that cascades and how the change for Dr. Strange. And it's like, yeah, he's just such a jerk. Giving him the thing that he wants puts him down this other path, but he still has all the elements of he's an adept at magic innately. He's got all these connections and, and bringing in Dormammu. I really dug this. And one of my favorite bits in this story is where everybody is just plotting to betray everybody like Mordo and Umar and Strange and Dormammu. It's like they all have knives at each other's backs. Yes, and it's yes. just a blast. It's a lot of fun. 
I, I will say one of the things that we managed to do, and I say we because Mark was in on it, in that what if, we explain a couple of things that hadn't been explained in the regular book. The Vishanti show up. This is the first time. Agamotto becomes more than a name. And we establish that the fancier cloak and the amulet are the emblems of the enemy of Dormammu, which I, when later I became regular writer on the book, I had done this, but these were fan ideas because I say at the end of Dr. Strange's first encounter with Dormammu, he beats back the biggest villain he's ever fought. And at the end, it's kind of weird, you know, here's this new Kate and amulet. Let's redesign you. And I said, if that was just Steve wanting a fancier costume, well, that was it. But let's make it more than that. You fought Dormammu for the first time. Here's your badge. In retrospect, that's become part of the canon, but it wasn't when I wrote it. And this was me more than a lot of the other writers. You know, I managed to get all of my nerdy research in there. All of the mystics, you know, the circle of mystics and all the little characters from the Stan and Steve stories, which was a lot of fun. It seems though, and I could be wrong here, but it seems like your perspective on this, on, on writing what ifs, is that it's essentially an exploration of character at its core. Is that a fair characterization? Pretty much, yes. Ultimately, the thing you can do with what if is you can do the best damn Spider-Man, Captain America, Doctor Strange story ever done because you can step over the bounds and you don't have to go back to the status quo at the end. So you can really push things. But in terms of what you can do is you can really get to who these people are. The, you know, the Spider-Man story, I wanted to push it about as far as I could go and say, in the first one, this is who Spider-Man could be if he didn't grow up. You give a kid superpowers and no supervision. That can be dangerous. So while you're working on the book, you have the story, you're, you know, you're working with Mark. And then Denny O'Neill comes on uh, as editor. For a title like What If, when you have an editorial shift, does much change? Because you're, you're still, you as the writer are thinking of your, your cool tales and the things you want to do. And you, you really get these sort of one and dones for the most part. Does much shift for you and the way you, you, you're producing your, your work? Um, yeah, you do have to work to the editor. And I worked with Denny on, well, really only one thing, but that was for Bizarre Adventures. I just did two issues. And then there was a whole bunch of other stuff. And then I had a couple more ideas. And Mark was still the go-to guy. Denny was overseeing it, but Mark was going through the slush pile. And I said, I got this Hulk story, and I got this Thor story. And those were parallels, too. I, I didn't know this at the time, but I look back on it. The Thor story I did was an objection to the way Stan and Jack wrote Jane Foster out of the Thor continuity. As a fan, I said, that's so unfair. So I got to do a what if in which Thor says exactly what I've said. That's unfair and goes into rebellion against him. And the whole story was 
Chirella died, got written out in an even worse way, you know, trapped under a falling wall. And of course, the Hulk couldn't save her or, or anything like that. And she was gone. And I said, what would have happened if he had managed to, oh, you know, like, stop the wall from falling on her? And of course, one turned out badly and the other turned out well. But Mark and Denny, after giving people a lot of time, and that was the last thing I did until Ralph took over the book. And when Ralph took over, whole different ballgame. So. It, that's an interesting angle that was it last week we we sat down for a conversation with Ralph about what if and we talked about a bunch of different things but that's an angle that we didn't really that we didn't touch on that I find really fascinating of this sort of corrective element that could come into play of saying you know I, I want to take this issue I'm going to take this time to explore what in my opinion should have gone down or what a character that in my opinion was maybe underserved in this other corner of the universe or something like that. Did you find that to be a consistent source of material for you? Or is that just an every now and then thing? And then most of the time it was just a a creative exploration. It it was sort of an, um, it was just an every now and then thing. However, one of the non me Mark Grunewald issues was Tony Isabella's What If Spider-Man Has Saved Gwen Stacy, which is, of course, really one of the most popular uh, stories they ever did, for the reason of everybody goes, no, 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 no. And um, I, just to get general for a second, I have a categorical problem with killing off the girlfriend or just writing her out. But usually she gets killed mm-hmm. and that's bad writing i think and sexist i've always objected to that and it's kind of you know male privilege at this point to do that so that you know that was kind of an eruption mm. and i know you know tony Isabel and i were just thinking in the same way you know it's like no no let's do some girlfriend not killed what ifs <laughs> Which is good. So you mentioned Ralph. Were you friends with Ralph? Like you were you were friends with Mark beforehand? Yes, or yes. yeah. How do y'all connect? Uh, you know, Ralph told the story of how he started at Marvel just by happenstance, ran into uh some folks at a convention and, and, and sort of built his career there. How are you uh, connected with Ralph? And um well, if you look in the letters pages, Ralph was writing, I was writing, Mark was writing, and we kind of got to know each other. One person who deserves mention is Bonnie Wilford, a.k.a. Bonnie Claremont, who may she rest in peace. And she was in charge of the mail. And she got really curious about all of these letter hacks for whom, you know, there would be five, six, seven letters a month from all of us. And so those of us, in the New York area, she decided to get us together. That's not how we got into Marvel, but it's how we got to know each other as people. And the other person is Don McGregor. Both Ralph and I were writing these immense, long, embarrassing letters to Don about how great his stuff was. And Don, (laughs) when I met Don at a convention, he goes, you, I want to talk to you. 
which is not characteristic of how you deal with annoying fans. But uh, <laughs> that's 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 what Don did, and we got to know Don. Don supported us in our ideas and so forth. And as that happened, we started to make connections. You know, once you let one of us in, we tend to infest the place. (laughs) When you think back on that era, when you think back on those first few years where you were entering the House of Ideas, you were getting to know people. And then once you started to settle down, just generally speaking, what do you think of? Like, what relationships come to mind? What was the sort of spirit in the air? Was it a, a time you, you think back on as like a an incredible, fun, you know, creative era? Or was it challenging? Was there pressure on you? What was it like for you? Yeah, there was definite pressure. And we knew that we were competing with every single fan on the planet to mm-hmm. get a gig. But we really, really, really wanted it. And we felt that we were good enough. And for me personally, I loved the work of a sort of generation of people who were mainly working at Marvel, but not exclusively. You had Don, Steve Gerber, Doug Mensch, Jim Starlin, and those people who were really pushing what comics could be. And they were really inspiring that they were taking it a little further. And once we got into the circle, we discovered that they were fans and they were helpful and encouraging and funny and and friendly. And Friday afternoons, DC let out early, you know, there was DC and there was Continuity Associates and everybody was sort of walking back and forth between the two. They were all in Midtown Manhattan and DC crew came over and then we got together and we went out to a bad movie and an expensive uh, dinner. And um, (laughs) it was wonderful in that there was a community whose work was comics, whose hobby was comics, whose art was comics. And it was being part of something like a movement. There was a feeling of this was comics. It was a wonderful time. And I I do miss it. You know, when you you mentioned that, it's like, We've had some of that stuff during my time as well. I could think before DC left New York and went to the West Coast, a whole bunch of us from both companies would just get together for beers every Friday. You know, like there was that camaraderie, like you say. And like, I even miss back in the day at San Diego during Comic-Con, half the staffs of both companies, probably like 70% of the staffs of both companies would go off and play a softball game for the Stanley Cup, those kinds of things. I really do miss that stuff. I hadn't thought about those those moments until you brought it up. Those were good times. It, you know, um, it did encourage people to take risks, to push, and to try new things. And a lot of people who might otherwise not have done as much good work as they did. I know the support I got from the people I admired, as well as my friends gave me confidence to move forward and try other stuff. It was a culture that helped Marvel grow. I'm curious, literally just the the four or five issues that we've decided to look at today, let alone the dozens and dozens and dozens more that listeners can go and go and read themselves outside of these. There is such a fascinating tie between 
the concepts, the sort of upside down reality, whatever it might be that are being explored in your issues, whether it's what if Hulk had become a barbarian, if it's what if Spider-Man's clone had lived, the Doctor Strange issues or the Uncle Ben issue. I mean, these are all ideas that 10, 20, 25, 30 years on seemed to seed storylines, big events, take your pick, that were, you know, explored in, in greater depth. Do you see that as, I mean, just like thinking of World War Hulk, for example, or the clone conspiracy, or there's like three or four Doctor Strange stories that I think come to mind that could fit into these kind of things. Do you see that as you were tapping into something crucial to these characters, some some sort of really fascinating uh, concept that really served as jet fuel for a great story? Or do you see it as you set the precedent and then others followed up and others took just the pure inspiration from you? I, I Personally, I feel like it's probably a bit of both and it's unavoidable your influence on these things as it rings throughout the years. But I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Well, my feeling about, for example, Scar, I think it stems not so much from my story, but from that John Buscema cover with the Hulk as a barbarian, I think people went, oh man, that's so good. <laughs> you know? um, and of course, the letters page was called Why Not? And when we do a what if, some people might go, why not? Now, what we were doing was taking a sledgehammer to the status quo of the character as it stands, but the status quo over the years changes. And Hulk, there comes a time when you can only do so many Hulk mad, Hulk destroy giant robot, you know, Hulk destroy big building, Hulk destroy evil superhero, <laughs> you know, or supervillain. And you have to go and expand the concept. And if you're looking for things to do, you go, why not this? Was that part of the conversations you're having with, you know, with your editors, whether it's Mark or Ralph or like, you know, you, you come up with a story and then there's that why not aspect of it. That feels like such a natural like you you two sitting at a desk and just like spitballing ideas. It seems to me that's like the most fun part of that part of the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it was in a corner where I didn't have to worry and Mark and Ralph didn't have to worry. We can't do this. I think maybe the closest thing we came with one of mine is my Captain America story, which the final speech in the story still gets reprinted all over the place because unfortunately, you know, it's applicable to our current situation. But, you know, I was not in a position to write Captain America. If I had done that story, it would have caused an earthquake, but it was what if, and that, that is part of the fun. If you're a fan currently reading the books, it's kind of, this is forbidden. You know, we're doing things that are not allowed. And there's a certain appeal to, well, you know, doing the Spider-Man. But, you know, <laughs> the, the second Spider-Man one that I did was a different, uh, I, I, I will tell you the story if you'll allow me to. Please, please, and, yeah. Yes, I went into Ralph's office with this idea and I said, you're going to think this is the stupidest what-if premise you've ever heard. What if the burglar had shot Aunt May instead of Uncle Ben? Mm -hmm. 
And he says, yes, you're right. That's one of the stupidest <laughs> ideas. Just, you know, it's like, what the hell difference? And then I said, the thing about the Spider-Man strip, it's a strip without a father in it. Actually, the father in the early Spider-Mans was J. Jonah Jameson. He was the bad father, but he was the provider of money so that they could live properly. He was the character that Peter Parker was trying to get validation from and who just reliably let him down. And I saying, what would it be like if Spider-Man had a good father figure in his life? Now, I did, in order to do that, I did have to sort of make up Uncle Ben's personality from whole cloth. I went with, it takes him about three days to discover Spider-Man's secret identity that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. And Spider-Man, with support, is a different character, almost completely. That was fun in that I got to, you know, really examine that part of Peter Parker. So much of Peter Parker is he was alone. His foster parents, his, his aunt and uncle were dead. He was alone in the world. He gets superpowers and they don't help him one bit. They make things worse and he has no place to go, which is one of the things that was extraordinary about Stan's, and, and this is really Stan's, Spider-Man that had never been done as a superhero and made it such compelling reading. So by saying, okay, this is what it would be like if he had a father and playing up against that, it ends happily. So for that one, I got to dig into Peter Parker a little more. We've read this story actually twice now on the show and rereading it again to talk to you. I was still reminded and struck by the the conversation between Peter and Ben after the reveal and after Ben says to him, I, I know you're Spider-Man. And like they have this conversation where Ben is so upset with himself and they have this like sort of come together moment and this cathartic expression of grief. And it's really fantastic stuff. I'm so glad we were able to read it and spotlight it again here on the show. I also wanted to spotlight Ron Friends. And Ron does such a great job here evoking the vibe of that Steve Ditko era, but still giving it the flourishes of his own style and, and, and that time. It's a beautiful book. Yes. And if you'll notice, when it moves over chronologically into the Ramita era, he starts drawing like Ramita with, with his own stuff. I, you know, I loved working with Ron. And of course he did one we're not talking about, but I will mention it, the uh, My Invisible Girl Getting Killed Off story. With Joe at inking it, it was just, we had both been working for a while, but we go, we've done a Marvel comic. Look at this, <laughs> you know. And I, and I will say, I got to talk to Joe at and I got to, you know, saying, you're responsible for one of my peak experiences as a creator by inking this issue. And he goes, oh, then, yeah, it just turned out wonderful. So, but Ron understands what he's doing. He's tremendously creative. And the Uncle Ben issue, I treasure the one page of J. Jonah Jameson working out what the trap that Ben Parker has put him in. I'm really proud of that scene. 
And uh, I think it stands up. I'm glad you brought up the the FF issue a little bit as well. I know we're not really discussing it, but it has the big splash page of Reed just distraught. And he just, he says, I've come for you, Annihilus. You're going to die. Burn into my brain. Friggin' love it. It's a great story. It's really good. Yeah. As fate had it, I never ascended the heights where I got to, you know, write the FF and the Avengers and Thor all at once. But parenthetically, I did get to write Doctor Strange, who's my absolute favorite character. If the comics fairy had come and bonked me on the head, and you get you get to choose writing one and only one comic book character. I would have chosen Doctor Strange. But I did get to handle these characters. And part of it was to play around with them, but also to, to also say what I think these characters really are. I was actually, that's funny you mentioned that. I was actually going to ask which characters stand out as your favorites, even after all these years. But to marry both of these points that that I think we keep coming back to, which is, you know, the characters that you wrote and then the character studies that these what-if issues end up being. I mean, one, the very concept of saying, okay, this sounds absurd. What if Aunt May had been killing instead of Uncle Ben? Maybe it sounds absurd, but to me, that sounds like it makes perfect sense, especially for a Peter Gillis book, because that feels like the ultimate character study. That feels like the ultimate, what are the subtleties in character that would emerge from a moment in time, a nexus like that, a split in the road. So when it comes to Stephen Strange, is there a certain essential character element, character flaw, character dynamic within that character that fascinates you, that provides you with the fuel to make a great story or that just interests you on a, on a character level alone? Um, it, it's not only going from an asshole to a non-asshole, but <laughs> discovering that as a doctor, your view of the world is tiny and wrong. The thing I always loved about Doctor Strange was where Steve Ditko took you to these places that nobody had ever seen before in the history of mankind. One of the things when writing the regular book, Roger Stern was a friend and Roger Stern took me aside one day and said, I'm running out of ideas for Dr. Strange. Do you want to write the book? And this was not how things were done at Marvel. That's the way (laughs) things used to be done at Marvel. And I go, you know, the answer, you know, of course I do. And then I said, you're smiling too much. He goes, well, your first issue is the, is the Beyonder Secret Wars crossover. You know, <laughs> like, thank you. You know, but, but still, Roger had a vision that we never set down in the book, but I may as well tell you now that Doctor Strange is 90 years old and that his training to become a magician took 25 years. And it's one of the reasons why he seems detached from the other superheroes. And, you know, without making this canon, we said Dr. Strange has been working on his abilities and his understanding for a quarter of a century. Now, he still looks young, but he's not. So being drawn into that and the resistance, which is kind of the second in Dr. Strange story. The second one was a little more subtle, you know, you know, Mordo 
really gives him what he wants, except it is enlightenment in the ordinary sense, but gets him off in the stage. But at the same time, Dr. Strange struggling to open himself up to all of this incredible stuff. It's not, I have power, because he routinely encounters beings with far more power than he has, and gods of other universes, and so forth, and learning to deal with that, both be humble and be strong. And coming from that broken vessel is really just just a fascinating thing. Yeah. Um, Peter, I want to talk to you about so much more. I want to get into uh, writing weird stuff like What The, because you have a bunch of little comedy bits in What The, which so is... Good. I, I love What The so much. It's part of the reason I have a weird sense of humor about all things Marvel, I think. So thank you for that. Um, I want to talk. I honestly, I think we have to get you on to talk about Strike Force Moratory at some point because I freaking love that book so much. But uh, the last thing I, I want to talk to you about here is in the letters column in issue number 47 of What If, it teases more stories. Dr. Doom and Silver Surfer by Stan Lee and Butch Geis. A two part, and then there's a two-part X-Men story by you and Jerry Ordway. Oh, what happened? God, I, would have, yeah, I actually, I got paid for it. I, I wrote the plots for the two double-sized issues. Wow. And the objection that Tom DeFalco had was, you know, partly due to Ralph's abilities. He's going, this is a book that is not on the schedule in many ways. You know, you don't have regular, and you keep on plundering the best people <laughs> to do them, and it screws up their other, you know, and 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 uh, and so forth. So, no, it's canned, and we had one entire book in the can, and that was "What If Iron Man Were a Traitor," drawn by Steve Ditko. Oh my God, I got to meet him. He told me he didn't like the story. Well, actually, he, he 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 formed a gun with his hand and went pow. So anyway, uh, but I, I I thought this is a perfect Steve Dico story because you know it's like guy makes bad choices and dies for it, you know. But at any rate, that had all been done, and so you know the rule of Marvel, which transcends the rule of editors, is if the book has been paid for, you know, it goes out. And it sold so well that they revived it. But at that point, I was pretty much out the door from comics, you know, for a variety of reasons. So, you know, we, we were sort of cut off in midstream. But Ralph and I both had our revenge in that, you know, you, you're going, no, we have to publish it. And it sold too well for us to cancel the book. I, I lament that we don't have that story, but uh, I appreciate you sharing your tales of, of these what if stories, characters and more. And, and I think, yeah, we will be hopefully tapping you back if you will have us uh, to converse a little bit more about mm-hmm. some other tales. Good enough. Yeah. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm, I'm an extremely reticent guy and it's really difficult to get this out of it. <laughs> we, look, we appreciate your candor and, and your wonderful um, just stories and, and tone and everything. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Peter. We really appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is great. My pleasure. Thank you once more to Peter. That is one where I truly feel we barely scratched the surface in terms of the stories that man has to tell. Such a nice person and just a really refreshing conversation with a humble guy who has put in some excellent, excellent all-time work at the House of Ideas. (laughs) 
All right, that's a wrap for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Polis audio development manager. And like Doctor Strange in The Defenders, he's a big fan of tarot cards. But all of Brad's tarot cards are the lovers. Whoa. Don't know what that means, but I like how it sounds. Me neither. Bye. <laughs> I'm Ryan. Bye. And I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. Your universe.